From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. Augustine actually gives this example of what it means to love. Um, Basically, is like for biblical interpretation, his argument was that any interpretation that ended up with the ultimate results of love of God and love of neighbor was basically right. You know, like, and yeah, you got to be careful, you know, in terms of how you get there. But at the end of the day, that's really what matters. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Drew G.I. Hart. He's a public theologian and professor of theology at Messiah University. He has 10 years of pastoral ministry experience and is the recipient of multiple awards for peacemaking. Dr. Hart attained his MDiv with an urban concentration from Missio Seminary and his PhD in theology and ethics from Lutheran Theological Seminary at Philadelphia. He's a sought-after speaker at conferences, campuses, and churches across the United States and Canada. His first book, Trouble I've Seen, Changing the Way the Church Views Racism, utilizes personal and everyday stories, theological ethics, and anti-racism frameworks to transform the church's understanding and witness. Hart lives with his wife, Renee, and their three sons in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Drew G.I. Hart, welcome to Things Not Seen. Oh, thank you, David. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. Well, we're talking now about your recent book, Who Will Be a Witness? Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love, and Deliverance. I thought it was a dynamite book, and it's a difficult book for me to describe because if you were to ask me, what is Dr. Hart's book about? I would say he literally talks about everything in the American experience and how it's not living up to the standards that it that it professes to be doing. So I, I just want to stress at the outset that this is going to be a comprehensive conversation where we're going to be going down a lot of different roads with regard to what you have laid out in this amazing book, Who Will Be a Witness? But I want to start in the middle of the book. There's a moment that you're talking about when you've been at a conference that has been focused on social justice in the Anabaptist tradition. You're at the last day of the conference. You're sitting on the front pew, and you're about to go up and preach. And you're in the middle of this service that is closing out this conference, and suddenly from behind you, a woman's voice shouts out and says, no, this isn't right. I want you to take us to that moment. Tell us what's going on in that moment and why that woman was shouting. Yeah, we had just spent a weekend focusing on anti-racism and racial justice and economic justice and gender justice. And really, this conference was bringing together leadership principles with, you know, organizational change and then rooted in a theology of justice. And so... And this final day, this final service is actually in context, is partnered with a local church there. And the pastors are praying, but they hadn't been a part of the conference. And they're praying about, you know, all the evil and injustice that is a part of our society. But in many ways, they kind of missed the heart of what it was about to the owning of the complicity of our own institutions and communities in these uh, realities. And so all of a sudden, I hear this woman yell out in this middle to upper middle class church community, you know, this isn't right during a church service. And I'm thinking like, this must be a church skit or something like that. But instead, over time, I begin to realize this is not a church skit. I'm watching her, her voice is quivering. Her hand is shaking. Um, This was not pre-planned. She's literally intervening, speaking up in that moment. And she's explaining that we've got to be able to name the ways that our own congregation and community has been complicit in racism and white supremacy for generations, right? And this is the Mennonite community that, you know, they didn't like hold slaves and things like that. And yet they, she knew that they needed to be able to identify the ways that they were also complicit in perpetuating 
these systemic uh, realities. And so it was a really powerful example of the kind of leadership that I hope could emerge even within the life of, of congregations themselves, not just about what we do when we go out in the broader society in the public square, but even as we gather, can we speak up and speak truthfully and prophetically name the elephant in the room in terms of the hierarchy and the power dynamics and who doesn't have belonging in our spaces and congregations. And so that's really what that moment was all about. And so if I'm hearing you correctly, the pastors who hadn't been part of the conference were coming in and the prayers that they were saying were literally naming the problem as out there beyond the doors of the church. And what this woman was doing and what you relate in the book that your sermon was also doing was naming the problem right in here among us in the churches. And I want to dig deeper into that dynamic, moving from imagining that the church is addressing some problem out there and bringing some truth out there to actually turning the lens back on ourselves and naming the fact that we are a part of this problem, we are complicit in this problem, these kind of power dynamics that you're talking about. And we'll be getting more into that through the conversation. But but as an initial sort of move here, what is it like when a church begins the process of turning around and looking at itself? That can't be an easy process, can it? Yeah, I mean, I think especially for congregations that have, which in many cases the, is the reality, but when you have a congregation that has not done self-examination, that is kind of oblivious to its own past and present, that is in maybe in denial or has suppressed some of the ways that their own traditions and communities have actually perpetuated harm, has participated in the oppression or at best silence to the oppression of others. Yeah, that can be, it can shake up a community in, in many ways. But what I've actually found is that for congregations that actually lean into this, um, it's actually a, a beautiful uh, rediscovering of, of what their faith is all about. And so I think my encountering congregations actually doing this work has actually, I think, deepened their sense of identity in Christ and their faith and their purpose in their communities. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Drew G.I. Hart. He's a public theologian and professor of theology at Messiah University. Today we're talking about his recent book, Who Will Be a Witness? Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love, and Deliverance. Well, we're talking about this kind of self-examination and awakening ourselves, awakening our congregations to the lies that we tell ourselves, particularly in the American context. And you go deeply into that in your book, Who Will Be a Witness? But as a way of helping our listeners kind of follow what you mean, one of the most clear examples that I got from your book comes early on when you begin talking about the story where Pilate is presenting a choice to a crowd of people about whether they want to choose to save Jesus from crucifixion or a man named Barabbas from crucifixion. And you do a rereading of that moment between Jesus and Barabbas, and you almost reintroduce to us who Barabbas is. And I think that some of the ways that we have misunderstood Barabbas can help my listeners understand the mechanics of what you're talking about when you use this phrase self-examination. Yeah. Um, so it's really fascinating how people read Barabbas. I mean, what I've often encountered is in mainstream society, he's kind of portrayed often as like this like cockeyed serial killer and almost as if like he's mentally unstable and he's just like can't help himself but kill people. Almost like he's the Joker, right, from Batman or some the Zodiac killer, right? These kind of images of just someone randomly going out killing and harming people. And then in other spaces, he's understood more as, you know, just uh, a foil to talk. People want to talk about Jesus as like the substitute for their, for their sinful life, right? But with Barabbas in this moment, what you begin to see is that all four of the gospel writers actually describe Barabbas as someone who partook in the insurrection, That is, he partook in the revolution and uprisings against Rome in Jerusalem. And so Barabbas is more like a freedom fighter. He's more like a Nat Turner, so to speak, than, you know, a joker. And I think what we see in the Matthew scene is actually, and you get clarity when you actually look at the original manuscripts, which actually say Jesus Barabbas and Jesus Christ. And so what they're doing is they're comparing 
two Jesuses, which is Joshua, Yeshua. It means it means the one who saves, the liberator, right? Who will be your liberator? And, and that's really the choice that Matthew is kind of setting the scene for is what kind of liberator do you want? And it's not a spiritual one versus an earthly one or or anything like that, but it's really the strategies and the approach in which they go about their liberation. Jesus is, is nonviolent and Barabbas's is violent, but they actually both have similar concerns wanting the flourishing of their communities. They want the end of empire over their lives. They want oppression and injustice and exploitation to come to an end. And so they actually have quite a bit in common, but they have different visions for how to get there. Now, if I'm hearing you correctly, Reattuning ourselves to the similarities between Jesus and Barabbas can help us to see both, and I love the way that you phrase this, that Barabbas is not a psycho killer, he's not a joker character in the narrative, and he we can help to humanize Barabbas, but also it can help us to understand the politics of Jesus and the way that Jesus is navigating under empire and against empire. Tell us a little bit about what we learn when we start to pay attention to Jesus's relationship to empire. Yeah. So what is fascinating is that Barabbas shows up in every single gospel account. We don't, we don't even get uh, every count of his birth narrative, but Barabbas is important in the Jesus story for all the gospel writers. And it's always the sociopolitical action that he took part in. And so they want us to see something about who Jesus is, that Jesus actually is a nonviolent revolutionary, that Jesus is clashing. He goes into Jerusalem and he clashes with the establishment and he calls them a den of robbers for their exploitation. He names that they devour widows' homes. That's Jesus's language in both Mark and Luke. And so it's a clash. And so we begin to see Jesus more clearly, not just as someone that wants to zoom us off into another world, right, in the heavens, but that Jesus cares about heaven coming to earth. That was Jesus's prayer. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. How do we begin to see a new society? How do we begin to see shalom and flourishing and the well-being and safety of all people in our society? These are the kind of things that we begin to see are are central to the politics of Jesus, right? Not the partisanship of Jesus, but the politics of Jesus are deeply invested in how we organize our worlds on this earth. Well, and this is one of the things I really loved about your book, Who Will Be a Witness. I'm a big fan of the Gospel of Mark, and you were sort of moving early in the book through the various Gospels and talking about the characters of each of the Gospels. And you came back and you said, and I really want to talk about Mark, because a lot of people pass by Mark and they don't pay Mark a lot of attention because it's so short and it seems so brief. And and you really unearth a lot of treasures in Mark. And I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about what you love about Mark, what you found in Mark that is important for these kinds of questions to help us understand the politics of Jesus. Yeah, I think for a very long time, I used to sleep on Mark myself. You know, I used to run to the Gospel of Luke because it was just so obvious the way that Luke emphasizes that the first will be last and the last will be first, the way the poor and vulnerable women, those who are struggling in society, it's just so clear that that's central to Jesus's ministry and mission. But what we actually find in the Gospel of Mark is actually a probably the most radical of all the Gospels, especially as it relates to his posture and position to empire in society. A lot of it is coded in the Gospel of Mark. It's almost like, you know, you think about the Negro spirituals and they couldn't just outright um, say certain things. So they embed it in, you know, biblical language and code it, right? So they can't talk about white people, but they can say, Pharaoh, let my people go, right, in their spirituals. And they can um, describe these realities in folk tales and stuff about briar rabbits and the fox. And so in the similar way, I think the Gospel of Mark embeds some really strong prophetic judgments against the Roman Empire embedded in that text. And we see Jesus in really powerful ways clash with the establishment. And so I love how the Gospel of Mark tells Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, he does something that none of the other gospel uh, narratives mention. It describes Jesus going in, scouting out the temple and everything that's going on. And then instead of flipping tables right away, he leaves and they go out for the night because it's not the right timing. And then the next day they come right back in and then they flip the tables. And so it's this almost kind of like revolutionary strategy of Jesus. You know, it, it, it mimics and reminds me of like, you know, 
Dr. King during Selma going and them going up to the Edmund Pettus Bridge and realizing, you know what, this isn't the right time. And so he actually turns them around. It was kind of strategic move in the moment, trying to decide what is the right thing to do and when is the right time to do it. They will eventually go back and actually fulfill and finish that march again for a third time. But I think that's the kind of thing that we see of Jesus. And it's a kind of a humanizing of Mark Mark's Jesus that we see, where maybe in the Gospel of John, for example, we don't really see a humanized side of Jesus. Um, And I think that's really helpful for folks who are struggling against injustice and oppression to see Jesus embodying and living out um, these challenges as well. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Drew G.I. Hart. He's a public theologian and professor of theology at Messiah University. His first book, Trouble I've Seen, Changing the Way the Church Views Racism, utilizes personal and everyday stories, theological ethics, and anti-racism frameworks to transform the church's understanding and witness. Today we're talking about his recent book, Who Will Be a Witness? Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love, and Deliverance. We'll be back in a moment. Each week here at Things Not Seen, we dive deep into the tough questions about culture and faith. Questions are a sign of growth, and it's way easier to hear the answers when others join in the asking. That's why I'm excited for our sponsor, BeADisciple.com. It's the social hub for all your spiritual quandaries. One click away at BeADisciple.com. Scroll through their affordable, ecumenical, accredited, short-term online courses, all taught by content experts. Here you'll be in the company of others where it's safe to discuss hard questions. If you have questions and are looking to grow, enroll in a course today and ask away at BeADisciple.com. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying our conversations today, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you can find nearly 10 years of episodes, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Our guest today is Drew G.I. Hart. He's a public theologian and professor of theology at Messiah University. Today we're talking about his recent book, Who Will Be a Witness? Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love, and Deliverance. Well, one of the things that I learned from your book, Who Will Be a Witness, is how to begin to pay attention to when the church decides to sit in the pew and when the church decides to get up. And it's going to sound strange for me to say that maybe for some of my listeners, but I'm going to bring in an illustration to show what I mean. You talk about a moment when a man named John Deere comes to give a sermon in one of the chapels while you're studying, and the reaction of the congregation, which normally is socialized to just sit and kind of nod along to the guest preacher. The physical reaction of this congregation was very instructive for you, and I think it'll be very instructive for my listeners. What happened that day when John Deere came to preach in that chapel service? Yeah, so this is a chapel service, and to be clear, this is this is undergrad students that are gathered there for chapel, and he begins to speak, and he's drawing from Matthew 5 and the Sermon on the Mount, and talking about Jesus's teachings around loving one's enemies, Jesus's teachings around, you know, blessed are the peacemakers, and, and really just informing a kind of, just helping us to see the nonviolent witness of Jesus and its implications for followers of Jesus. But you've got to understand the backdrop to this moment. This is actually just a couple years after 9-11 had happened. And so if you can remember that time, you know, the spirit of revenge was in the air and many students, including Christian college students, were in this mode of like, we've got to get them, right? We've got to get those folks back who got us. And so John Deere begins to teach on the teaching of Jesus. And most people didn't necessarily respond to that portion of the of his talk, but then he went on and began to talk about what was going on in the broader society the wars that had be, that had begun, the kind of spirit of revenge that was in the air and the way that the church had kind of just drank it all up in that moment. And so he's really challenging us. And in fact, he went, he was explicit. He, he named George Bush, he named the war, everything. Like, 
And for me, like I did not grow up in a peace church tradition. And so when I'm hearing him talk, I'm like, like, whoa, he's really going in all the way. But I had grown up in a church where it taught us that Jesus was the center of our faith. And so because he had grounded his message in Jesus' teachings, I knew I had to kind of lean in and take that seriously. So I began to lean in and listen to what he is saying. And right as I'm leaning in, I begin to notice in this darkened auditorium that there's some commotion and there's movements and I hear footsteps. And before I, I know it sounds almost like a stampede and students by the hundreds, probably like, let's say almost two to 3,000 students are gathered there in this chapel. There are hundreds and hundreds of students literally getting up and bailing out as he is talking. And I always mention that, you know, it's always a big deal at, at Christian colleges where chapel, you have to actually swipe to get credit for the semester, a certain number that they left before they even got their credit. So this, this was their stand. They felt that this was the line that could not be crossed. And I found it really fascinating precisely because not necessarily that they would have necessarily been familiar with that perspective that was more leaning towards peacemaking and nonviolence, but more that they were so upset with the challenge to America and America's nationalism and the American militarism, so much so that they could not even sit and listen to this Jesus-centered message. And I mean, he was literally basing everything off of the teachings of Jesus. And and so for me, it, it really caused me to wonder like, in what way were some of my peers actually formed in such a way that their their American nationalism grounded their sense of identity even more than their commitments and their identity as followers of Jesus? And so that's really what was uh, revealing for me in that moment. Well, I, I want to dig a little deeper into that and the insights that you draw from that in your book, Who Will Be a Witness? But before I do, you used a phrase a moment ago, and I want to make sure that my listeners are following us in the conversation. You used the phrase peace church, peace churches. Could you tell us just briefly what that means? What's that tradition? Yeah, so the peace church traditions are the churches that have historically not gone along with the theology and ideology of just war, right? And it's a very small group. I mean, most of them are in what they call the Anabaptist tradition. So it's like Mennonites and I guess Amish counts officially, but Brethren in Christ, Church of the Brethren, some of these traditions. And also Quakers have historically also been included in the peace church tradition as well. And so it's actually a pretty slim amount of churches that have historically for the long, since the Reformation have been a part of that. Certainly in the early church, that was also a very common position as well, but that it has not been the dominant interpretation of Christianity for the majority of the Christian tradition. Well, thank you for filling in that little piece, because I want to make sure that listeners are following us. But I'd like to return to this larger question that we're pursuing. So this image that you give us of this darkened auditorium where from a couple thousand students, a couple hundred get up and even fail to get credit for chapel because they can't stand to listen to what this man, John Deere, is preaching about peace and the words of Jesus that apply to pacifism. That's an example when the church, a congregation, decides bodily to get up and be visibly moving. But one of the things that you talk about a lot, particularly about the American churches in Who Will Be a Witness, is all the times that our congregations stay in their seat. And I'd like to explore that a little bit. What are some ways that we can look around the landscape of American Christianity and see People who believe that they're good Bible-believing Christians sitting in their pews and not getting up when they should. Yeah, I mean, I think that some of the best examples would be, I mean, if you think even about the civil rights movement, right? Today, everyone loves to celebrate the civil rights movement, and especially they love to celebrate Dr. King. But ironically, the majority of Christians were not participating in that. In fact, many were hostile to King, especially in his later years. The the more he went on, the more hatred and vitriol was expressed towards what King was doing. And so many saw themselves as good, nice, faithful Christians, and yet were either perpetuating the racial systems or were silent to the sufferings of Black people in the broader society. And so there was a real failure in terms of public expression of their faith in the public square never fulfilled itself. And so I think that that is a great example of ways in which Christians too often, so many have not actually embodied their faith in the public square. 
Well, in your book, Who Will Be a Witness, you, you make some references to some Douglases. You talk about Frederick Douglass and the contemporary 20th century, 21st century theologian Kelly Brown Douglas. Both of these thinkers, who were both African-American and allied with the liberationist traditions of Christianity, they both point out that there's a slaveholder religion, that there's, that there's a strain of Christianity in the West, but especially in America, that looks at the Bible and finds in it justification for one human being being who's created in the image of God, owning or doing violence to another human being who's created in the image of God. And so part of my question to you is, if we can look at a church, if we can look at practitioners, if we can look at those who practice slaveholder religion, and they're reading the same Bible that you're reading when you're talking about Dr. King and justice and equality, what tests can we use? What practical pieces can we bring into that conversation to begin to differentiate a reading that results in a slaveholder religion and a reading that results in a liberationist or in a, in a, in a way that brings fulfillment to the image of God in persons, in our neighbors? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is one of the deep questions that people have to grapple with. I remember hearing C.T. Vivian, Reverend C.T. Vivian, who recently passed away, once said at a talk, I heard him live saying this, and it blew my mind. He said, the civil rights movement ultimately was a clash of two Christianities, right? And I really found that really profound, the way that he had described that. And I think that's precisely what Frederick Douglass says, right? And it's in, in his appendix from his the slave narrative biography, where he he says that he loves, he loves, you know, the true Christ, right? The peaceable, pure, impartial Christianity of Jesus Christ. But then therefore, then he says he must hate the slaveholding, woman whipping, cradle robbing, partial in Christianity of this land. And so we've seen at every stage of our nation, um, different expressions of Christianity flow through this land. I mean, during slavery, we saw that clash. During Jim Crow, we saw that clash. Um, even to today, very different understandings of Christianity. And we've got to ask ourselves, are we, like it's, it's very easy for someone to, in 2020, to look back and say, oh yeah, slavery's wrong and Jim Crow is wrong. But to denounce that, but still operate out of the logics of Christianity that supported slavery and Jim Crow and so forth. And so we need to find a liberative faith. And, and I would say that for folks that are really invested in that, you've got to actually be in solidarity with those who are oppressed. That there is no way to find that reading, to see that perspective outside of solidarity with those who are oppressed. And so I think that we, and it has to be embodied and lived out in our actual lives. And ultimately, you know, our capacity to love those who are most vulnerable, as Jesus taught, the least, last, and lost, right? The little ones of society, that our capacity to do that is the mark of our actual love for God and others. And if that's not happening in many ways, that reveals that there's something corrupted and, and mangled and entangled in our faith. And, and again, we can see a long history, both in this nation, as well as in the broader Western Christian tradition, many examples of faith that lived, at, lived itself out well, but also that was complicit and entangled in all kinds of oppression and empire and injustice. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Drew G.I. Hart. He's a public theologian and professor of theology at Messiah University. We're talking about his recent book, Who Will Be a Witness? Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love, and Deliverance. Well, a moment ago, you used a phrase. You talked about the logics of Christianity that result in things like slavery or oppression of others. And I want to make sure that listeners are following when you use that technical term. What are some examples of the logics of Christianity that you're talking about? And how can we spot them? How can we know to see those logics? Where, where do they reside? Yeah, I mean, I'll use one quick example, which is to think about during under slavery, many people who practiced slavery or endorsed a slaveholding society, they went straight to the Bible and they started quoting Bible verses, right? And they found examples of patriarchs who had slaves, provisions in which, G, which, in which God is not denouncing slavery explicitly. And, and the fact that Jesus doesn't explicitly spend time talking about slavery they said was an argument for a pro-slavery, right? In contrast, at the exact same time, 
you have abolitionists and especially black people who are saying, no, 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 look, look a little more carefully. We see in the story of the Bible, a God that delivers Israel out of the bondage of slavery and in which they are constantly under empire, whether it be Egypt or Babylon or Syria or Persia or Rome, right? Um, And then we see Jesus who embodies this message and says that he's come to set free those who are oppressed, right? In fact, Paul actually identifies Jesus in Philippians 2 as a slave, right? So he's embodied and identified with those who are most vulnerable. And so uh, there's different ways of reading. And so one of the strong arguments that the abolitionists made was, we've got to love our neighbor and you can't hold someone in slavery and actually love them. But the logics of the slaveholding religion actually said, no, we've got, we can quote a Bible verse at you. We don't need your fancy interpretations of the spirit of law. We're going to look at the letter of the law. And here's a text, right? Slaves, obey your masters. And that's the final word. We don't need any biblical backgrounds. We don't need to reflect on it. We don't need to think if this fulfills the life and teachings of Jesus. We've got a Bible verse, right? And I think that those same logics can exist today. That's just one example where people quote Bible verses really quick, and they think that that should end the conversation and don't necessarily grapple with, does this reflect the life and teachings of Jesus Christ and the spirit of the message of God's reign come on earth that we ought to be living into? Now, you use a phrase in your book, Who Will Be a Witness? You talk about majoring in the minors and minoring in the majors. And when I'm hearing you talk about the ways in which slaveholders would sort of emphasize and say, no, no, I've got a passage and I don't need your fancy interpretation, what I hear in that is an example of this practice of majoring in the minors and minoring in the majors. In other words, taking little things and making them big and taking the really important things and making them small. First of all, when when I make that parallel, am I following the logic that you're talking about when you talk about this phrase, majoring in the minors. Absolutely. I mean, that's exactly what Jesus is teaching is on, right? So this is out of Matthew 23, 23. And he says, you know, you tithe mint, dill, and cumin. And he's talking to the religious leaders there and he's scathing, he's just ripping them up. You tithe mint, dill, and cumin, that is, you know, windowsill plants. And yet you neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. That's Jesus's teaching, right? And so he's saying the law, that's the Torah, that's that's the, the Old Testament teachings, the heart of it, already teaches you what is most central, to do justice, to love mercy, to to live faithfully in the world. And yet you are more obsessed with the legalistic tithing of the windowsill plants than actually doing justice, right? And I think that that can certainly be seen in how some people read their Bibles and how some people interpret the meaning of Christianity in such ways that actually bolsters the status quo. It makes Jesus into a mascot for oppression rather than as a liberator and as a peacemaker in our world. There's a moment in your book, Who Will Be a Witness, where you talk about you've, you and your family have been attending a church, and your wife is talking right after the, the co-pastors of this church have been brought up for their one-year review, and they've been really kind of raked over the coals, and they actually end up leaving the church. But your wife was saying, well, I really like the way that they preached, and the person turns to her and says, oh, you like that social justice stuff, huh? And, and that phrase kind of rings out because... If I'm hearing you correctly, the way that you're reading the Bible and and the way that I think, if I'm hearing you correctly, you'd argue that the Bible simply presents itself is that every page is about that social justice stuff, and you have to work really hard to miss it. Am I characterizing that correctly? Yeah, so I would say that's the heart of it, right? That that is certainly the heart of it. Now, I do think, to be fair, like, if you are looking to cherry-pick verses— then I guess you could say it's it's hard to know what the heart of it is at that point, right? When you can just, I, I tell my students, you can argue anything you want to with the Bible, right? You give me the topic and I can randomly extract Bible verses, arrange them in a line, and then universalize the theology out of that. And so if that's the the method, right, for engaging and interpreting scripture, then then it's not clear. But when you actually look at the narrative and think about what is actually being emphasized and the way that it interprets itself, right? The way that Jesus interprets scripture and gives us a lens to read scripture actually does center justice and mercy and faithfulness. It actually does center. I mean, Jesus' own teaching says that love God and love of neighbor are the whole law and prophets hang on that teaching, that that's the heart of it all, right? And so I think that I would argue that it certainly presents itself in that way, 
But there are ways in which you can easily go down a different rabbit hole if you're just looking to justify anything that you want to argue for. You use this phrase, love God and love neighbor. I'm aware, I'm recalling that in your book, Who Will Be a Witness, there's this moment when you're actually talking to a real neighbor that you have, a Muslim neighbor. And the neighbor makes the the comment that has been sort of echoing around Islam for a long time, that Christianity is a white man's religion. And you actually engage that a bit, and you, you reread Christianity and sort of take away that claim that Christianity is simply a white man's religion. But then you do you do a, a 180 and you say, but it also is a white man's religion. I think we're getting to the edge of that, but I'd love to hear a little bit about that thought process of how you reclaim Christianity from that assertion that it's a white man's religion and why you also agree to some extent that it is. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important that we do both because there's this temptation to want to ignore our actual history. And I think that that's not helpful and it's just dishonest. But on one hand, like historically, in terms of the origins of the church, Europe was an afterthought in many ways for the beginnings of the church. The, the, the church was not grounded in the life of Europe, you know? Um, I think there's this false perception now in the present that Western Europeans have like a copyright on Jesus and a copyright over the Bible and a copyright over the interpretation of Christianity. But that would make no sense in the early centuries of the church. They were the margins of the church and and it really emerged out of the Afro-Asiatic region, right? That Christianity emerges and the early Christian thinkers, um, so many were African, right? Tertullian and Athanasius and Augustine and so many others that deeply shaped theological thinking in the life of the church and guided them along the way. So it makes no sense to talk about Christianity is the white man's religion, at least in terms of its origins and its starting points. But the problem is, is that over time, the West does become the dominant majority of the church and begins to conflate itself with Christianity, right? And so Western civilization and Christianity get conflated with one another over time in such a way that they forget that they're Gentiles. And now they assume that everyone must assimilate into Western civilization and ways of life. They assume that they are the referees over the tradition, right? And they can tell everyone else who's doing it and right and who's doing it wrong. And there's no question that late Christendom births the, the period of colonialism, right? I mean, there's papal bulls that actually are written, church official church teachings that are written that actually give permission for conquests and to enslave and to plunder, right? And so by the time Christopher Columbus shows up in 1492, those permissions have already been given, right? And he's living out what I would say is a white man's religion at that point, right? And it's very ugly and it's devastating and it destroys indigenous people's lives all around the world. Their customs and ways of life are flipped over on their heads and upended in devastating ways because of that. And I never want to minimize and pretend and water down what actually happened just because I'm a follower of Jesus. I think we need to tell, speak truthfully about the way Christianity got weaponized. Yes, it was mangled. Yes, it was diseased and distorted. And, and I don't think it was a faithful representation of Jesus's life and teachings. But nonetheless, under the name of Jesus, it was weaponized and it was used to to oppress, to enslave, to exploit, and to literally to try to inherit the worlds, right, for so many around the globe. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Drew G.I. Hart. He's a public theologian and professor of theology at Messiah University. We're talking today about his recent book, Who Will Be a Witness? Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love, and Deliverance. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org.
Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years worth of shows, all free and available for your listening pleasure. Our guest today is Drew G.I. Hart. He's a public theologian and is professor of theology at Messiah University. He's got 10 years of pastoral experience and is the recipient of multiple awards for peacemaking. Today, we're talking about his recent book, Who Will Be a Witness? Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love, and Deliverance. Well, I want to focus on this line from the subtitle of your book, Igniting Activism. In the earlier part of our conversation, we talked about ways in which American churches find excuses to sit in their pews and not stand up when they need to. And the back half of your book begins to engage this question, what does it look like when the church becomes active? What does it look like when the churches become activist churches? And you use a number of models, and you you sort of bring them into conversation with one another. But one of the central models that you deal with, and you criticize a little bit as well, is the community organizing model. And so I'd like to start there for our listeners. When we use this phrase, community organizing, I want to make sure they understand what we mean. Yeah, sometimes these terms get overlapped. And so sometimes people will say organizing when they really mean just mobilization or activism. But organizing, community organizing is really about locally connecting with neighbors, hearing their concerns, and kind of uniting your voice and collective power together. And it's really a strategy to to build power, not top-down power, but redistributed power back to the community so that they can go with in strength to their politicians or to whoever power brokers they're trying to engage and really leverage their collective voice to make a systemic change. And so organizers, they're usually known for, you know, doing one-on-ones, meeting with one person at a time, letting them, let, letting people express the concerns and things that are impacting their lives locally in their neighborhood. It's not focused on partisan politics as the starting point. It's really focused on on the suffering and the harms and the struggles that people are dealing with on the ground in their local neighborhoods. And then creating priorities and literally leveraging the collective solidarity of the community together to bring systemic change. And what usually happens is that they are focused on the long haul work, right? Where movements come and go, they are that kind of like steady friend that's always there, just still working, whether it's in the news or not, they're at work trying to bring change. So that's really the heart of what uh, organizing is really about. And then in your book, Who Will Be a Witness, you you talk about the power of this community organizing model, but then you say, but it also has some weaknesses. And one of the weaknesses that you point out is that community organizing can be very rigid. It can be inflexible. So in what ways can community organizing be harmed by its own inflexibility? How does that work? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the great examples would be is during moments where like there's really a big stir or whirlwind going on in society and people are hungering for change and it's it's in the air sometimes like sometimes it's just in the air where change is like ready to just like ignite and sometimes organizers because they are very critical of movements and how quickly they can come and go often they won't always necessarily lend their strength and their expertise and their insights to communities, to social change, because, you know, they don't want to kind of participate in this movement work. And and I think they actually sometimes miss out on real great opportunities where real change can actually happen. And there are examples where real change happens during movements, right? And could even happen maybe even more greatly if community organizers could leverage their skills and their insights within the context of the movements to guide them into more strategic work. And so I think that those are missed opportunities sometimes, even as they are deeply impactful and really important. And of course, there are some folks who are hybrids and who do all of these things as well. 
Okay, so a community organizing model is the long haul model and they're building coalitions and they're doing the work daily and you say community organizers don't want to get distracted by movements. Movements are responsive and they can really be in the moment kind of fomenting for structural change and they have real dynamic energy. And you, you're presenting a, a almost a dialogue, a dialectic between the two that, that one can learn from the other and you say some models are hybrid models. We've established that the American churches, for the most part, are doing none of these things. They're neither long-haul nor are they responsive. So what from each of these two sides of the spectrum can the churches learn from and utilize? What do churches need to start doing practically in order to be the kind of churches that you're envisioning in your book, Who Will Be a Witness? Yeah, I mean, some of my hope isn't necessarily that they will like pick one model, right, and then run with it per se, Though I do deeply believe that faith-based organizing is a good option for congregations just in general, because it it just aligns really well with the kind of work that we should be doing, connecting with those who are hurting and those who are suffering, where the pain exists in our society, and building solidarity with our neighbors in that way. That and that's really an organic part of who the church ought to be, right? Not just a country club, but literally out in its communities, um, building that kind of solidarity. So that makes sense. But I also think that the church can be flexible and open and adaptive to the needs of the moment. And so it needs to discern, right? I talk about, this is from Kelly Brown Douglas, uh, the Kairos moments, right? These moments, seasons of change. Um, how can we join in and participate? And there's a whole variety of ways that that churches have participated in these kind of movements, whether it be just serving those who are actually participating or literally joining in. And, and and I think that whether a church is doing the organizing or movement or hybrid or whatever, there's great opportunities for us to do grassroots work. And my concern at the heart of it is that too often we start with partisan politics as the starting point for our imagination for how to respond to our moments. And so we're kind of stuck um, just fighting over the political platforms of some elite the person that prepackaged it and handed it to us. And I think instead of that, let's start on the underside with those who are hurting. Let's start with our neighbors and then, and then go to the politicians, whether Republican or Democrat, and say, these are our demands. These are the issues that are, are hitting us hard in our communities, and we need you to respond to them. And often it'll be a lot more nuanced of an issue than just the partisan fights that we find ourselves locked into. And it's not to, I'm not trying to oversimplify as if like all the political parties are all the same. I don't believe so. I think some can be really harmful at times. Some politicians can be really dangerous, right? And we need to be able to prophetically speak against what's happening. But at the same time, we can't just get locked into having our ethics and our social imagination limited and restricted so much by the partisan politics and not by the actual people on the ground and the needs and experiences that are um, guiding their lives. You used a word just a moment ago, imagination. And and in your book, you call out for a moment the theologian Walter Brueggemann and his book, The Prophetic Imagination. And I, I'd love for you to just tell my listeners, what role does imagination play in the church? What role does imagination play in the kind of, of action that is oriented towards love that you're talking about? Yeah, it has to play an enormous role. I mean, what is fascinating is that Jesus's teachings were all centered around um, the language we use is God's kingdom, right? But it's this alternative world, this other world that he says has begun and has come here on earth and that is going to one day manifest itself fully, right? And if that's true, then we have to be able to envision and imagine God's dream for us all. We've got to be able to imagine life beyond death-dealing systems that harm people. We need to imagine policing and education and all these kind of stuff outside of the systems and structures that exist today when they're uh, harming some and benefiting others, right? And so imagination is enormous. And when our imagination gets restricted, when it's captive to the logics of the day, especially when it's status quo and oppressive, th then that's really dangerous. And the church just perpetuates or bolsters or sanctions, right? What already exists rather than what could exist in its place. I mean, I think that's why Dr. King was so powerful when he talked about the beloved 
community, right? It was his way of, of inviting people to imagine God's dream for all of us, for all of God's children. How do we strive and struggle for that new world? And for those who are desperate and hurting and oppressed in our society, it's usually pretty easy to to do that kind of imagination, to engage in that kind of imagination. But sometimes those of us who are too invested in the way things are right now, it's a little bit harder work. And we actually need to actually hear the hunger and thirsting for justice in the world from others to actually be in it, to be cap- captivated by a, a new imagination. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Drew G.I. Hart. He's a public theologian and professor of theology at Messiah University. Today we're talking about his recent book, Who Will Be a Witness? Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love, and Deliverance. Well, a moment ago we started talking about the divisions that are here in American society in particular and the tenacious wrangling over resources. And I'm going to make a characterization of how I encountered the last few chapters of your book. You do a thoroughgoing critique of what I will call the love of politics, the the love of politics that says, I'm on one side, you're on the other side, we're rival teams and we're going to fight and one's going to win and I'm going to do anything that I can to win. That's the love of politics, the love of the tussle. And what I see you doing in the last couple of chapters is you're inviting those who may have been distracted by their love of politics to replace that with a politics of love. And that reversal is very powerful and it rings out for me so strongly in the book. But I'd love for you to share with my listeners a little bit about how you envision a politics of love that the church could embody and embrace as a witness for the American experience. Yeah, I mean, I think that for me, there's no question that to be human is to, you know, participate in in-group, out-group behavior, right? Where we see our group as, you know, the greatest thing since sliced bread and we see others as not quite as great and sometimes in very stigmatized and negative ways. And what ends up happening is that there's always a segment of the population that we're actually socialized to not love, to not have compassion for, and often to demonize, right? And so this love gap often shapes how we interact and and engage in our society. And it's especially those who are most vulnerable, marginalized, and oppressed in our community are are often the ones who are most likely to find themselves in someone else's love gap. And so in response, we find Jesus's teachings where love is at the center of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Um, In fact, love of God and love of neighbor for Jesus are inextricable from one another. In fact, the love of neighbor Love of God is expressed through love of neighbor. It's so much so that Augustine actually gives this example of what it means to love. um, Basically, is like for biblical interpretation, his argument was that any interpretation that ended up with the ultimate results of love of God and love of neighbor was basically right. You know, like, and yeah, you got to be careful, you know, in terms of how you get there. But at the end of the day, that's really what matters. And that's really what you get throughout the New Testament is that everything hangs on this idea of love of neighbor. Now, it's easy to talk about. And I, I admit, even in the book, that one of the biblical characters I identify with sometimes is Jonah. It's precisely because he struggles with God's love, Right. He's sent to the Ninevites, according to the story. And the Ninevites, if you know the Assyrians, they just are ruthless. They're violent. They destroy. They, they did pillage communities. They put their heads on spikes after they defeated them and just like destroy the land. Like it, that was their reputation. And so in this story uh, with Jonah, Jonah doesn't want to go and invite them to repent, right? He hates that idea. And so instead... You know, he flees and we have this kind of really almost Disney-fied kind of story of him fleeing and getting swallowed by a great fish and all these kind of things are thrown up. And then at the end of it, you have, you know, him going and submitting to this idea that he's got to go to the Ninevites. And so he goes and he gives this like really harsh, like, you know, fire and brimstone kind of you're all going to burn and go to hell kind of message almost, right? And yet... All the Ninevites, they actually repent and they change and they turn their ways, right? That's how the story runs. But the climax of the story isn't about any of that. It's actually what happens after it. Um, The climax is in chapter four, where Jonah, basically, he's upset, right? And, And so God and Jonah have a conversation and Jonah's like, 
I knew the kind of God that you were, that you were a loving God, that you were a generous God, a compassionate God, slow to anger, right? So Jonah understands God is not this God. You know, sometimes we talk about sinners in the hands of an angry God. Jonah doesn't, is not confused by that. He doesn't think that God is out to get everyone, is going to crush everybody. Jonah actually realizes that the character of God is love, that that actually defines who God is. And that's precisely why he, he didn't want to be any part of this, because he thought that the Ninevites had what was coming to them, right? That they needed to to get punitive judgments and condemnation and punishment for all that they had done. And so that's really what that text really struggles through that I think many of us struggle with as well, is that there's always these uh, particular group of people that we don't think are actually worthy of our love. Maybe in general, yes, love is good, but not for those folks, right? And especially when we're talking about those who are marginalized in society, it's actually precisely love that ought to motivate us in the public sphere to work for justice on their behalf. And so if it's not being expressed concretely, both through compassion and action, then it's not really true love. It's not genuine love. And so I draw from like Martin Luther King and and Howard Thurman, who teach us the power of love, that it's not weakness, that love actually is healing for those on the inside who are suffering because it gives you liberation from the bitterness and hatred that eats you up while your oppressors might be going on just fine. But it also can be politicized. Dr. King shows really powerfully that love is the greatest weapon that the oppressed have at their disposal because they can't fight at the same on the same terms as great military mites, right? Like Black folk trying to fight the U.S. government and the U.S. military would be silly, right? Um, but, but what they can do and have done in this nation is commit themselves to love um, in such a way that they invite people to reimagine themselves, not on the side of oppressor, but in solidarity with the oppressed. And that's why King said, uh, love is the only thing strong enough to convert an enemy into a friend. And so if they can get a vision for God's beloved community, this, this other world where everyone can flourish, we can strive for that together. So beloved community is something in the present, and it's also something in the future that we are working towards. I'm so moved by everything that you said just now about love. It's a very powerful vision. But I'm, as you were saying it, I, I had ringing in my mind that song by the 1970s band, ironically named Nazareth, Love Hurts. And so I want to ask you, as we're coming to the conclusion of our conversation, how do you, how does a listener keep that well of love alight? How, how does, in the face of all of the things that can bring us down and can cause us pain, and all the ways in which we can see our efforts being dashed by the structures of power, how do we keep love, how do we keep hope alive? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it can only be done as we practice it in community with others. I think we all need to be in communities that give, receive, and share love freely, right? And that is a healing thing, right? When you actually experience that, when you're a part of communities where love is being expressed and you are also being loved. And this is really important, I think, for people who have been oppressed and stigmatized in our society. Often, especially I'll speak in, out of the Black experience, like, often our psyches are under constant assault and our society often doesn't know how to love black people well, right? And so we need to be a part of communities that are loving and sharing that love freely back and forth. And that can shape the the kind of love that we can then reciprocate broader in society. And again, I think love is not necessarily, I think we can think that love is just about sentimentality, but that's not what I'm getting at at all. Um, Love also means speaking hard truths. Love also means confrontation. Love also means shutting things down, right? Love is not this kind of weakened sentimentality kind of perspective that sometimes gets pushed or being nice, right? That's not what love is about. But it is this commitment to see the the full humanity of others, to recognize the dignity in each and every person, and then to struggle for the, the welfare and the benefit of all people, especially those who are most vulnerable. Well, Professor Drew G. I. Hart, I so enjoyed your book, Who Will Be a Witness? I found myself energized by it. I found myself nodding my head at many passages, and I found myself profoundly moved and challenged by much of it. I've got like 15 bookmarks in the book, passages I'm going to go back and read more carefully and contemplate more carefully. Thank you so much for taking the time to write this. It is a powerhouse of a book. Thank you also for taking time to talk to us about it today. 
Thank you, David. This has been a pleasure. Our guest today has been Drew G.I. Hart. He's a public theologian and professor of theology at Messiah University. He has 10 years of pastoral ministry experience and is the recipient of multiple awards for peacemaking. He attained his Master's of Divinity with an urban concentration from Missio Seminary and his Ph.D. in Theology and Ethics from Lutheran Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. He's a sought-after speaker at conferences, campuses, and churches across the United States and Canada. His first book was Trouble I've Seen, Changing the Way the Church Views Racism. Today we've been talking about his recent book, Who Will Be a Witness? Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love, and Deliverance. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.